0: Oh, yes. Oh, uh, This is the court now in session for the Supreme Court of the United States. Hey, uh, John Birdsall is going to be joining me a little bit later, but I'm just going to set the groundwork for what's going to be a pretty detailed discussion about a big case that was just decided uh, recently. It was on December, no, well, January 20th, which was, what, two days ago. Um, and this is the case of Hempill. Versus New York. And this goes way back to 2006, when uh, there was a very unfortunate incident involving a two-year-old child who was hit and killed by a stray bullet after there had been a street fight in the Bronx. And there had been several eyewitnesses that described the shooter as wearing either a blue shirt or sweater, some sort of blue um, article of clothing on the upper body Uh, police rounded up this guy by the name of Ronell gilliam and also nicholas morris when they were doing their initial investigation they got a search warrant of morris's apartment and they found a nine millimeter cartridge consistent with the bullet or the gun that had been fired and killed the two-year-old and also some 357 caliber bullets Now, this guy, Ronell Gilliam, initially identified Nicholas Morris as the shooter, pointed the finger at him. And they got us, you know, that's part of how they got the search warrant for Morris. But then, for some reason, he subsequently ends up saying that his cousin, Daryl Hemphill, um, which, as you can probably tell by the fact that the Supreme Court case of Hemphill versus New York, you know, this guy ends up getting prosecuted ultimately for. The murder, but this happens many, many years later. So, going way back to when this all first started, the state of New York gets this information that uh, Gilliam is no longer pointing the finger at Morris, and now he's saying it's my cousin, Daryl Hempill. And uh, the state offers Mr. Morris a plea deal in which they agreed to dismiss the murder charges if he pled guilty to possession of the 357. Um, which he was not supposed to be in possession of. So they end up uh, dispensing of the case that way. And the murder more or less ends up unresolved or unprosecuted for years. And then, as we all know, uh, DNA science gets better and better over time. And they're able to do some additional testing on a blue sweater that had been found in Morris's apartment shortly after the murder, and lo and behold, this guy, Daryl Hemphill, his DNA, is on the sweater. So they decide to indict and prosecute uh, Daryl Hemphill for this murder. So they're in trial, and one of the things that had come up earlier in the investigation into Morris was the fact that during the search of Morris's apartment, they had found this nine-millimeter ammunition, and the defense in Hemphill's case put forth the theory that hey, it's it could be this guy Morris because after all, they found some ammunition in his apartment, and it matches the type of ammunition that killed the little girl, um, and. Because of the fact that the defense had raised this possibility... By the way, this is undisputed testimony. This is from a prosecution witness. There's no doubt as to the fact that this evidence was found and it potentially linked Morris, the guy who got the sweet uh, deal from the state way back when this incident happened, um, that there was this evidence that could potentially tie him to it. So what the prosecutors in New York did is that they decided to offer a transcript from when Mr. Morris had originally entered his plea on the gun possession charge. And the problem is, by the time Hemphill's trial rolled around, uh, Mr. Morris was no longer available because he was no longer residing in the United States. He was living abroad. There was no ability to get him from either side, the prosecution or the defense, as a witness in the case so he was declared what we call unavailable for purposes of testimony so when someone's you know designated unavailable there are different rules that apply as far as how the testimony can come in if there is any and the prosecution had this transcript from back when uh, morris had entered his plea on the gun charge and essentially the prosecution had said hey we don't think Morris did it anymore. Now we think that it's this other guy, but we don't have any evidence on that either, so it's just going to be a cold case. So the DNA comes later, and, you know, many years later, and then now they're in this trial. So the prosecution's stating in Hempo's trial that because the defense had asked questions about the existence of this 9mm ammunition in Morris's apartment, that now they had the right. To introduce this transcript, which by the way, Hempill wasn't there, his lawyer wasn't there, nobody involved with the case was there when this discussion was had um, on the record with uh, Mr. Morris, Nicholas Morris, when he entered his plea to the gun charge. And the problem is that it gave the overall impression to the jury that was hearing the Hempill case that the prosecutors uh, dealing with Morris had figured out they couldn't prove their case. So the fact that he had been charged with this murder and then it had been basically dropped was what the prosecutor was trying to bring into evidence in that whole procedural process. Now, what you have to do is look back at a very long line of cases, but it all begins with the Constitution and the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution in particular that contains what we call the Confrontation Clause. And as we see jurisprudence go through the years, um... Where the United States Supreme Court in particular is analyzing that confrontation, right? They take it very, very seriously. The fact that if somebody is going to make an allegation or state something in court that the other side has to have that, specifically the defense, I mean, that's what we're really talking about, is the defense has to have that ability to to find out where where does this information come from what was the background for it was there an incentive to lie was it done under circumstances that someone might be you know wanting to lie was it self-serving you know was it tainted how good was the observation you know a number of different things that were all very significant and important to you know our founding fathers when they made this a very important part of our process by including it in the Sixth Amendment, as part of the Bill of Rights, so what happens is in the Hempill case, the judge in the case decides to allow the prosecution to do this, in spite of the fact that Morris is not actually available to be called to the stand. They let in this transcript where it was very clear that you know there would be no opportunity to cross-examine him, and there is a case in uh, in. New York called People v. Reed, and it follows another Supreme Court case, United States Supreme Court case, called Ohio v. Roberts. And it's a case I remember learning in law school that, that basically holds that even if someone's unavailable, and even if the testimony appears to be you know more or less one-sided, then without that opportunity for cross-examination, if it appears to be taken under conditions which are quote-unquote reliable, it can still come in. Now, that in and of itself is kind of a weird thing in this case, because the evidence they were introducing was Morris getting a sweet deal from the prosecutors. He's no longer, you know, they're a suspect. And they're like, OK, we'll just plead to the possession of a 357 and see ya, Bye. But uh, but again, um, that's basically how they, and they said that that was done under oath. It was done in a courtroom. It was done when it should be deemed reliable statements. Now, personally, I think that's a bunch of nonsense because that's probably very unreliable when the person's accepting this great plea deal, right? Well, anyway, the judge in New York says, go ahead, let it in over the defense's objection. They appeal to the next level of appeal and they lose. They appeal again to the highest level of, appellate court in new york state and they lose again so it ends up going all the way to the united states supreme court and lo and behold it's an eight-to-one decision reversing the conviction and yes indeed it was uh you guessed it clarence thomas that was the lone dissenter and i know when john arrives in just a minute here he has uh, some comments that he wants to get into Regarding uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in another very important decision that came out earlier uh, this week, as well, having to do with um, executive privilege and whether or not the former president uh, can claim that executive privilege persists beyond his term in the presidency. So it is time for us to take a break, and we will be right back after these messages. Stay tuned.
1: We are back. With more legal defense and SCOTUS unveiled, SCOTUS Supreme Court of Stoutous. the United States, Supreme Court of the United States, right here live on WHBL. Well, not live. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Kirk, I guessed correctly, uh, and that wasn't an that wasn't, that wasn't a tough guess. So, the real question is, I guess, now <laughs> now is um, what the confrontation clause is in relation to criminal fairness, criminal process and and honestly, you know, a lot of conservatives, Scalia, foremost among them, were big advocates of making this a very, very serious right, which I think is one of the most fundamental rights besides the right to remain silent um, uh, is to be able to confront witnesses against you live in court so you can cross-examine them. And that appears to be lost on the New York courts.
0: (laughs) Well, it was, but hey, New York isn't unique in the sense that they've tried to develop some workarounds on this issue that gets raised. And, and actually the case that uh, came up people versus read, which is kind of a permutation of the Ohio versus Roberts case, which by the way, I remember learning about Ohio versus Roberts um, way back in law school. And it's sort of like, yeah, there's this one rule, but you can get around it this other way. And that, that has to do with this whole indicia of reliability uh, argument, but going back to like, the importance of the confrontation clause. It's in the Sixth Amendment. It's embodied in our Bill of Rights. And every time there is discussion in especially the Supreme United States Supreme Court jurisprudence, it is treated with the utmost sanctity. It's one of those rights that, as I said earlier, the uh, justices are more than willing to look back at what the design and what the big concerns were of the founders. And obviously a huge concern is that it would be unfair and not part of due process and not part of a reliable court or justice system to simply have trial by affidavit or but once, you know, we want to present this statement. And by the way, you can't cross examine the person. You can't challenge it. We're not going to produce the person here in court for you to be able to do what? Bring out the truth, right? That's really kind of what this is all about. Right. So that one side can, the side can't manipulate
1: Yeah, those affidavits are like one little sliver of the story. Right. And cross examination is designed to dig and force people to answer tough
0: questions about what the rest of the story is. Right. Right. So here's the really dumb thing about the state's position on this to begin with is that they, they wanted to get in the fact that this Morris dude took a deal that more or less exonerated him, at least from the prosecution's perspective of being a suspect in the murder because he had been charged with the murder and they basically ditched it. So, (laughs) <laughs> Think about that. <clears throat> they're arguing basically that procedurally and the fact that, you know, this dude, and by the way, it, it, they're arguing under Ohio versus Roberts that there's this indicia of reliability because it was under oath and on the record, excuse me, from a defendant who's taken a deal and that that's huh. supposed to be reliable? Come on. Well, well
1: <laughs> let's just look at what the jury instructions, at least for the 7th circuit, in federal court in Wisconsin means, uh, when you have snitches or people who are getting cooperation deals and the jury instruction that the judge gives says you're supposed to look at this with great care and caution. And the reason for that is because they know that
0: people who get deals tend to lie a lot. Yeah. And and by the way, you're talking about you know, a very common situation where a snitch would take the stand and the defense has always given great leeway to ask a lot of questions about like, all right, Mr. Snitch, you've got yourself a pretty sweet deal now here, don't you? You know, <laughs> and to go into all the details, right? So the defense didn't have that opportunity in this case because the guy himself, isn't available the prosecution's basically just trying to put this transcript in to give the jury the impression that it really that Morris couldn't be the guy because that's how his case was resolved and they talk about the things they said and the fact and by the way never even they never even discuss any of the details of it so it was really more like the impression which is another completely you know that's the reason why it should never have been allowed to begin with is pure relevance but anyway the concept that hey this was under oath it was a defendant he had to say things true he had to promise to tell the truth about his own misconduct on the record while the prosecution's giving him a big sloppy kiss and saying <laughs> be on your way sir um, you know as if to say that that's reliable enough of course it isn't but significantly this is why hemp now is an important decision is they basically took one of their own prior decisions ohio versus roberts and said it basically called the whole concept into question. When it comes to pure confrontation rights and evidence against a criminal defendant in a criminal case that goes to the very heart of whether he's he or she is guilty or not, Ohio versus Roberts doesn't matter. That is not going to trump the entire situation. And that's, that's the correct holding, in my opinion, by the way. You know, as if to say, yeah, you got it. You would have the right, but person's unavailable it's not anybody's fault you know hey you know let's just make it a little easier for the prosecution because of this difficulty in finding well, a lot of in court, a it. lot of courts have tried to do that with things like you know
1: um, uh, uh, crime lab results or blood testing results um, as you well know where maybe the original analyst isn't available so they'll bring in somebody else just to testify about the original analyst report. And, you know, somehow this gets a pass.
0: And um, that, that, those were the facts in Crawford, where that's right. exactly what I believe the state of Washington was doing on a routine basis. They were calling in. Uh, <laughs> you know, they weren't calling in. They were just submitting. They had a statute that said in any case where they have to prove, like, the existence of a drug, in that case, it was cocaine. They can just submit this report that somebody at their crime lab says, yep. It's cocaine, all right, um, <laughs> and and they had been doing it for years. By the by way. the way, that's exactly how they say it. <laughs> yep, it's cocaine, all right, <laughs> all right. The they had been doing it for a very long time, and everybody in that state was like, "This is wrong, this is wrong." Finally, hits hits up to the, goes up to the Supreme Court, and they're like, "Yeah, that's totally wrong. Can't do that. You guys crazy?" So,
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, you know this confrontation right and um, the demand for search warrants in a variety of situations, you know, blood testing, things like that, um, that a a lot of conservative jurists, um, not Thomas necessarily, but, (laughs) uh, but most of the others uh, that you can think of Scalia or Scalia like, um, uh, are very insistent on demanding those uh, rights be, you know, faithfully observed. Now, in practice, they come down to things like, okay, if I need a warrant, well, I get a telephone warrant, or you know, some some you know, they just their forms, and yep. so it's kind of an it's kind of a silly exercise in some fashion. It's sort of like the Miranda rights about. <laughs> or Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, and um, and how they're kind of skirted around in a whole variety of ways. Oh, I know uh, another you know, way.
0: Another way of wording that, which I was just talking to um, one of the other attorneys in our office earlier today, uh, about or I think it was yesterday actually about the yes, there is this form, this you know two paragraph thing that cops are required to read, but you must always remember that they hate doing that and they (laughs) try to do all kinds of other stuff so that they don't have to do that. And even the manner in which they read it um, has sort of evolved into this thing where cops use Miranda almost like a weapon instead of what's supposed to be a shield for the defendant. For example, I'm sure you've heard this, John. Well, before you can tell me your side of this story, which I really want to hear, and this is your chance to tell me, we got to do, you know, the formality. Yeah, we like got this little, paperwork, got this little thing. I've to read yeah. this
1: real quick. And you got to sign this form to saying that you understand and you're waiving your rights. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> no problem, though. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. Yeah, yeah. Which which
0: more or less they're allowed to do. I mean, I know, they kind of – they're kind of well using aware. this whole process like, well, that's that's for guilty people, and you know, you you want to tell me all the reasons why you're not guilty, which really is a trap. But anyway, yeah. so we got to take well, a break, dude. When
1: we come back, I want to talk about these uh, this Supreme Court ruling about the January
0: sixth insurrection. Motion granted. Thank we'll you, right sir. Back. Court is back in session. Please rise. <laughs> all right. So, hey, I know we we're going to jump into a thing having to do with. Insurrection type stuff. But did you hear about uh, the, who's the guy in the uh, state legislature just got quote unquote disciplined for uh, having continually suggesting that um, the 10 electoral votes that were cast by Wisconsin should be withdrawn, an action that the state legislature is completely incapable of doing. And uh, uh, Robin Voss took action to discipline. I think it's uh, Grantham is his name. I can't remember. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, he's been probably the most vocal about, you know, election fraud. You know, Biden stole the election, et cetera. And he you know, he's been basically uh, mirroring all of the conspiracy theories and asking the state legislature to do something about it, which they're completely they have no, to do. no power whatsoever to do. <laughs> <None> <laughs> whatsoever. Definitely. So he, okay. he keeps insisting on this and Robin Voss, who is obviously a very conservative person himself, Republican, uh, disciplined him by stripping him of his staff, uh, you know, all uh state reps assembly persons have it are allowed at least one person that like answer their phone answer emails schedule stuff you know as part of their quote unquote staff so now this dude that's is a power is play. Without, <laughs> wow. he's without a staff he's got to do all this stuff on his by on his own that's his punishment i guess but um anyway so you wanted to get into another one of thomas's interesting uh uh you know uh
1: dissent? Yeah, dissent. Is that what it is? so on Wednesday the Supreme Court refused a request from Donald Trump to block the release of White House records concerning the January sixth atta- attack uh, yes. attack rule. Okay. And it, it effectively rejected his claims of executive privilege and cleared the way for the House committee investigating the riot to start, re, re, start receiving the documents hours later. In fact, um, uh, it was an unsigned order, and is it it one of these. I don't know if it's a shadow docket thing. I, it's what it sounds like. The majority wrote that uh, Trump's request for a stay while the case moved forward presented weighty issues, including whether and w- in what it circumstances a former president may obtain a court order preventing disclosure of privilege records from his tenure in office in the face of a determination by the incumbent president to waive the privilege. Um, and and um, because, of course, um, the current president has waived that privilege, right? And so the, um, Thomas yeah. Thomas, in his dissent, wanted to let stand an appeals court ruling that Trump's desire to maintain the confidentiality was outweighed by the need for a full accounting of the attack. And so um, it it kind of, like, okay, so the court ruled probably, well, certainly the right way, uh, but this dissent was off the wall, really. Mm-hmm. You know, a former <laughs> president has no standing, and standing is a very important legal concept, has no standing or, you know, right to use another term, to claim privilege when they're not in office.
0: Right? Well, okay, there is actually another procedural part of this that's important, and it is certainly within the rights of the successor president to invoke the privilege on behalf of the executive branch theoretically. If there is an issue that relates to Right. That's true. Functioning of the current government. That's already clearly been waived by President Biden. He's like, nope, I'm not invoking that. You know, it's going to have to come down to whether I pass president. Right, right. So, you know, it's like saying, uh, you know, they want to, you know, they're going to ask Jimmy Carter questions about what he did when he was president. He's like, nope, it's proven. The disturbing part
1: of this whole thing is the lack of interest by um, current Republican leadership to want to ask questions about this um, January sixth riot, insurrection, yeah. whatever you want to call it, um, and and it it's a, it was like a horrific thing that happened for like diabolical purposes that everybody wants to whitewash apparently. Or not
0: everybody, but, but the no, here, here's the argument. John, John, here's the argument. And I and I no. I think I can encapsulate this. The resistance to this cooperation is is springing from this notion that the investigation itself is politically motivated and therefore trying to keep it non political, it it is necessary to resist the investigation. Now, in reality, that is in fact. Invoking politics, <laughs> but, but it, the spin on it is we don't want, you know, people don't want to participate in something that appears to be an overtly political attack. Now, strangely, I, I don't think there's any precedent for uh, saying that in trying to find out facts so that we're not talking about rumors, innuendo um, people's opinions, which there are many. Um, about what happened, what didn't happen. And and by the way, you know, just look it up on anywhere on the Internet and you'll find all manner of theories, including things like, you know, it was all orchestrated by Nancy Pelosi. It was actually mm-hmm. she did it, you know, or you babies, it, it, well, you know, all kinds of different things. So, I mean, in the interest of <laughs> just, I mean, it's, it's like there was there were theoretically people that were opposed to the 9-11 commission too. I mean, that was dumb, but you know, ah. you finding out what happened is kind of, you know, one of the government's functions. Look, and at the very same time the people are making this argument right here in Wisconsin, we have former justice Gableman, who so far has spent over $630,000 in taxpayer expense for his you know so-called investigation into something that didn't happen and everybody's fine with that you know that's not that no, is that
1: honestly that is one of the zaniest things like you couldn't even make that up <laughs> if somebody was going to say hey can you come up with a great like weird election movie script um you know and somebody you know gave a room full of writers some magic mushrooms and
0: <laughs> said, <laughs> "Come up with something crazy." They wouldn't have come and, up and, with this. And you got the writing staff from National Lampoon to like put, <laughs> yes. put the script together like too. That. Yes, and they wouldn't have come up with this because <laughs> it's really,
1: really just it's like it's either it's either um, a delusional. Um, you know a uh, thing by a by a group of people or it's just a deliberate uh disinterest
0: in the truth right mm-hmm. and right. well that's that's the I problem i
1: think it's the latter
0: yeah uh, it, and, and it's and that always fascinates me a disinterest I mean, and, and that's a really good way to put it my friend uh disinterest in the truth because that's one of the greatest evils that our society faces right now in, in addition uh, i think the primary evil is Uh, an active portrayal of falsehood, but a disinterest in the truth is probably the the cousin of that evilness. So, but, you know, getting back to what you and I do on a daily basis, a disinterest in the truth often is what leads to injustice in our system. And we, and I just want to go back to what we were talking about earlier in the show, which is, what we see in this hempill case, hempel case, is what we see all all the time in lower courts all over the country. A trial judge makes a decision, usually in favor of the prosecution, because uh, they're afraid not to. And then the the ability for an appellate court to disturb a lower court's decision becomes increasingly you know, unwilling as well. As the, the case it's, works its way it's, up. They've
1: they've systematically designed it to make it almost impossible.
0: Right. So almost when you get impossible. one of these cases, like the one that just happened the other day,
1: first it's of all, the remarkable. odds. It's the really odds. Remarkable.
0: Yeah, the odds of a of a criminal, mm-hmm. you know, case defendant actually prevailing in the United States Supreme Court after having failed uh, three previous times on the same issues. Is remarkable. I mean, I want to meet the lawyer that argued that case. Yeah. Well, it's time to hear from our commercial sponsors, so we're going to have to do that, John. I know that right. disappoints well, you, but I, ho- you, I, I hope it's something outrageous. I hope it is too. I hope it's just completely wacko, but <laughs> maybe not. So we'll be right back. We are back.
1: More criminal defense. More January sixth. More confrontation. More. Whatever you want in the law, yeah, it's all here. It's you, all here. You got it. You got it's it. You want hair. it. You got it. Okay. Hey,
0: I got another little little story here that has to do with the January sixth stuff. Oh my
1: goodness!
0: And I don't know if you heard about this, but you know Alec Baldwin, uh, the actor, one of the Baldwin brothers, and uh, well known for his killing spot on impression of killing on the set uh, Donald Trump, and also for accidentally. <laughs> supposedly killing people, yeah. Okay, um, go ahead. I don't know if you heard this story, but you know uh, when there was the evacuation of Afghanistan, and tragically, there were U.S. troops that lost their lives in that process. Um, Alec Baldwin tried in a very, you know, patriotic and non-political way to reach out to the widows and survivors of those troops. And one in particular, I don't know if he did this for all of them, but the one that's making big headlines right now is the widow of one of these troops that was killed. He unsolicited, he sent her $5,000 and said, hey, I, I feel your loss. This is a terrible thing that happened. You know, please accept this, you know, to help with funeral expenses and whatever else. And she gladly cashed the check and did stuff and. You know, and they okay. became like. Uh, I guess they were following each other on Twitter. I don't know what it was, but anyway, it turns out that she was there at the U.S. Capitol on January sixth. Oh my! And Alec Baldwin finds out about it, and was she,
1: was she? He wants his money back.
0: No, he doesn't want his money back. But he he just basically said, you know, she's bragging about how she was there and she was part of this, and let's make history. Now, to be completely accurate, she never made it into the Capitol. She was she was at a place, uh, 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 you know, geographically, I guess, where she was not part of the throng that actually made it in. She did not engage in any actual violence. She didn't have any actual confrontation with the cop. She was there, according to her, expressing her First Amendment rights. Okay, fair enough. But Alec Baldwin says you're a deplorable person for participating in this and you're hanging out with rioters, insurrectionists, etc. Now he, he may have, may have gone a little further than what the truth was, but he was basically commenting on the fact that, Hey, you know, and he never even mentioned the money. He's like, this is a terrible thing for you to be doing. And I, I really think that you're a terrible person <laughs> for doing this. Um, so the woman who got a check, from Alec Baldwin for $5,000 is now suing him for $25 million for the pain and suffering that he caused her by criticizing her by showing up at the January 6th. Oh, wow. Wow. Talk about going after deep
1: pockets. Okay. (laughs) All
0: right. So I'm going to make it my practice, although this may not, you know, Thrill a whole lot of people, but I, I'm just not going to be sending out cash to people I don't know. Um, I have. You know, I, I made the decision. decision. I made the
1: decision as a very young man um, that um, I would keep the cash and put it in my um, retirement account or spend it on my son. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. Was an easy decision. Actually, I mean, okay. So I mean, the whole dynamics of this are kind of crazy. This is. And I'm sure our listeners are familiar with these two words, and when they go together, it's a terrible thing. But nuisance, lawsuit. You put them together, you've got a terrible thing, which is part of our American system. And fortunately, it's not the kind of thing that you and I deal with very often, but it is kind of the dark underbelly of what how money makes the world go around. And, you know, well, this is something that uh, lawsuit, I, I remember it was a hot topic. Trial to harass. Right. There's Basically in garage. order to obtain money because litigation is not worth it. You know, better who does that in spades? Can, uh, you of, can you think of a name? Yeah, I can. I think right. he used to be the president or something. Wait. I don't know. Oh yes. Oh him. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so anyway. by the way, this is um you, you know, this comes into an ethics issue that comes up often in our practice. And this has to do with charging legal fees. And I know that we're getting a little bit off course for our usual thing here, but I just want to comment on this was a hot issue when I was in law school. And I know I went to, I went to law school just a little bit after you went to law school, but this whole concept of tort, reform, remember them throwing that, throwing that term around a lot, tort reform, what that yeah. means. Sure. Well, to boil it down to layperson terms, it means it's an effort that started I guess in the late eighties or somewhere in that time frame, to force litigation when you're fighting over money to be so expensive that the litigants will eventually give up and settle. It was a way to try and stop the courts from being congested. It was supposed to deter the filing of a, you know, a frivolous lawsuit. So two things happened. One, they kind of bolstered the rules of ethics about what can be alleged in a civil case when you're seeking money that you have to have a more you know profound or based yet more based in fact than just speculation. It was also, I think, shortly after uh, the Dalbert decision that also was an effort to kind of reform all those things. But it, it, it's, the overall process was designed to keep as many cases as possible out of court. So let's say I want to sue somebody for a million dollars, but it's going to cost me $2 million to do it. Well, guess what? I'm not going to do it. Judges don't right. waste their time. Right. People don't go into court. It's really designed well, to make They safe.
1: developed this, um, uh, I guess, like picture or just like they, they framed it as all – Plaintiff suits are f- frivolous, right? Mm-hmm. And they aren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of bad things that people do, corporations do, individuals do, that, um, you know, should be the subject of legal actions for compensation. Right. Um, even though compensation doesn't bring somebody's life back, doesn't, like, replace a lost arm, it doesn't replace, if you're a company, you know, uh, massive losses from, you know, insider trading or you mm-hmm.
0: know, stealing. Pain training. and suffering. I mean, that's a legit thing, you know. Yeah. And, and it's because of the fact that uh, nobody in the universe has the ability to bring back a dead person or to reattach an arm that got chewed up in a, you know, meat processing <laughs> machine or whatever, you know. Um, the, the fact that money takes, takes the place of things that uh, have been lost is is not necessarily a bad thing. But the impact that it's had generally on the legal system, and I, I see this as it applies to, to us, what you and I do, our system, ethically speaking, is exactly the opposite. And when judges are used to uh, this whole process where in the civil world, there's a Tremendous incentive to not go to trial, to settle out of court because it's getting expensive and they want to make it more expensive. They want to make it more difficult so that both sides talk to each other and compromise. I see where you're and, going. And in fact, you know, the, the ABA rules on uh, ethics require a plaintiff's law firm to not cover the costs of litigation. Now they can do it on a contingency basis if they want, but they can't. Actually pay things that are expenses of a plaintiff uh, that are not associated with the litigation, like paying their rent, paying their medical, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And that and that's specifically excluded and prohibited because that perpetuates the litigation. See what I'm saying? So yeah. it's supposed to be, you're supposed to have this risk. You know, you hear the, we won't charge you unless we win. Well, it's a, well, that's fine, but you have to calculate the risk of not winning. Now, what happens when it comes to us and what we do, uh, I think prosecutors, judges, they have the same sort of mentality. Like, this is getting too expensive for your client. You should really just settle this thing. Well, also, we're going to make it so
1: painful in terms of penalties Uh, mandatory minimums, et cetera, et cetera, that they will want to plead no matter what the circumstances. And that's insane. And that's what the the trial penalty, I know we only have a little time left here, but we should do a whole show on that. Yeah. And I know you're very well-versed in that. I'm well-versed, and I'm also heading up a committee to examine it in Wisconsin. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: And I'm so proud of you for that, by the way. And, uh, hey, can we give it before we run out of time? We're just coming up very quickly. Can I just give a shout out to our associate attorney Nicole Muller for her excellent contribution to the oh, state State Bar um, in fantastic. her analysis of what's wrong with of innocence. Yep. Yes, the presumption of innocence and and bail and all these other things because she hit it right on the head, man. And uh, that's nailed it. Nailed it, man. All right. We'll be back next week as we can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Lee offense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend, everyone. Have a great one. Bye.